Hey everyone, I'm Andy Tratner. And I'm James Bollinger. This is Yup and Coming, an open-ended conversation with interesting young professionals about their lives and careers. We're so excited to have you along for the ride with us as we learn from our guests about the chances they've taken, the tough decisions they've made, and the great careers they're building. In this episode, we talk with Joyce Kang. Joyce is an MD-PhD student at Harvard and MIT. We met through the U.S. Presidential Scholars Program, where we were both advisors to a bunch of high schoolers. And Joyce has always been an inspiration to me for her kindness and service to others, as well as her hard work and thoughtfulness. We talk in this episode about how her undergrad experience helping others informed her decision to become a practicing doctor. We also talk about time management, the value of mentorship, and how to develop a relationship with a mentor so that they can actually become a sponsor and write a really strong recommendation to help you apply to college, get into a job, etc. We also touch on lots of other topics like being a woman in STEM and why Joyce might want to move to Australia. Maybe do you want to start with walking us through the like early life story? I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, um, in some of the suburbs there, um, Bellevue and then Brentwood. And uh, yeah, growing up, I um, w- when I was in school, I, I found myself uh, really just interested in a lot of different things. Um, Subject wise, I, I I thought I was uh, better at math and science, but I still was uh, really interested in in um, language and 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 uh, social studies and everything. I just like really liked school a lot. Um, I liked being in class, um, interacting with classmates, and getting sort of uh, to to learn kind of every day. Um, I think that's part of part of the story for me is like I I'm currently a student, even though I'm 24 and going to be a student for the next couple of years. So uh, I really liked being in these like intellectual communities. Um, the school that I was a part of uh, was. Um, a public school, but it was uh, had a lot of really great teachers who really cared a lot. And so I think that was really important in terms of uh, my development and, and being able to uh, find things I like to do there. I was really involved with uh, the math team and Science Olympiad, um, was involved with actually founding the, the Science Olympiad team at my high school and had, um, we can talk a lot about that, but had a lot of fun uh, kind of competing in science and math related um, related things. And I also did a lot of, um, played the piano, uh, a lot growing up, um, was able to take lessons at, uh, the music school at, at Vanderbilt university called Blair school of music, uh, and was able to actually in high school, get a scholarship to, to take lessons there, uh, for free. Um, and was, it was a really, really great experience. Um, I was also a very mediocre member of the tennis team, uh, and, yeah, just got interested in a lot of different things. Like I, I, I did a lot of Latin for a little bit. Um, went to like several national conventions, just, like just for Latin, uh, and did some like Latin-inspired art and and things. Um, so, yeah, I would say in high school I was a uh, very much like a. Um, I like to sample a lot of different a lot of different subject areas, and was very fortunate to to have uh, have had a good school and um, supportive environment to do that. 
and then you went to college. Can you tell us about maybe how did your professional identity evolve going beyond high school? Sure, definitely. Um, So in high school, I was really very interested in science and engineering. Um, And then sort of more towards the end of of high school, got uh, more interested in uh, potentially exploring medicine and biology sphere. It was actually an MIT interviewer um, who is a, currently a physician scientist at Vanderbilt. In uh, summer, right before I went to college, he, uh, I was basically trying to uh, explore a lot of different things, and so I reached out to him and was able to shadow him. He's a nephrologist, so he sees patients with a lot of patients with end stage uh, kidney disease, and his lab actually develops is trying to develop a kidney on a chip, basically. And so um, through shadowing him, that was sort of the first time I'd seen, I was able to see the sort of physician scientist route of, of um, seeing patients and also doing research at the same time. So that was the summer before college. So then uh, coming into college, I um, was very uh, interested in exploring computer science. So I, I, came, I went to um, Stanford and coming from uh, Tennessee, like it was a very, I, I would like, I often like to say, like, I feel like my life really started uh, in college just because I think uh, growing up in Tennessee, I mean, there are not as many opportunities, I would say, compared to the coasts to be able to interact with people who really are thinking about new uh, new ideas and like really exploring, pushing boundaries before, uh, beyond what's already known, um, just as a general like cultural thing. And so I think I felt a lot of that at Stanford and was really excited to get involved with um, like computational work as well as um, work with computation applied to problems in biomedicine um, and biology. And so I uh, did a lot of undergraduate research uh, studying the microbiome of um, patients using techniques in metagenomics. And um, also at the time got to uh, to do a lot of uh, peer counseling and um, volunteering as an EMT, which sort of uh, is what really motivated me to, to, to get into medicine. And we can talk a bit about, about that as well. Um, and so sort of throughout college, I was not really sure what I wanted to to do professionally, but I was always um, interested in uh, doing some sort of combination of medicine, computer science, and research. And so uh, end of my junior year, I ended up applying to MD-PhD programs, which is where I am now, um, which, are, which are basically these programs where you uh, you go through both medical school as well as uh, getting a PhD, so doing a lot of research. And currently I'm a uh, third year in the program. So I've done two years of medical school and I'm currently in the first year of my PhD program. So I'm doing a PhD in um, bioinformatics and integrative genomics at uh, Harvard. And then the um, the med- medical school program I'm in is, is joint between Harvard and MIT. It's called Health Sciences and Technology. One question that sticks out to me is it seems like Early on, you had so many really great hobbies and you know different interests that you were pursuing. Do you feel like those have remained fairly consistent um, through high school, college, and kind of the beginning of your uh, you know education and career here, um, or have they changed a lot over time? I think they've definitely some have stayed, some have changed. Um, like for example, in high school, I, I, I spent a lot of time uh, playing piano, sort of. To be able to, I, I did a lot of like uh, local competitions and statewide competitions and stuff. And sort of to stay at that level, you do have to practice like multiple um, hours uh, a day or at least per week. Um, and coming to college, I 
if I were to have continued to do that, I don't think I would have had enough time to do to explore other new things. Um, so, but you know, I still, for example, still like playing tennis a lot, and that's something that's I've uh, been doing since I think elementary school. Um, and there, yeah, I've been able to pick up a few other interests uh, along the way. Uh, in college, I got really into yoga. Um, at Stanford, you're allowed to basically take these like one unit uh, wellness slash like athletics classes. Um, and so I would always like to sign up for uh, yoga classes and did all sorts of like power yoga, all these other variations of yoga. And that's it's a way that I feel like I can take some time out of my week to just like relax, um, recenter and uh, sort of make myself pull away from work and, and focus on uh, well-being. Um, and then I also like in college was able to try out social dancing, which is like a huge thing at Stanford. It's actually like, like kind of weird. It's like this huge phenomenon where there are these huge classes of people every quarter who um, learn all sorts of social dancing from like waltz to swing. And there's uh, several like these dance events every year. One of them's called Viennese Ball where everybody dresses up and it's like this giant social dancing event. It was so much fun. And that's something I just uh, sort of signed up for um, on a whim when I was signing up for classes one semester and really, really glad I did. Um, yeah, so I think throughout college, um, college med school, and, um, I've been able to keep up some hobbies, but definitely trying to explore other things as well. That's really fantastic. And, you know, a big theme that I feel like we've talked about with so many guests is uh, how their hobbies kind of influence their work life. Um, do you feel like you've kind of, you know, that's influenced the way that you approach medicine at all? Or, or do you kind of keep those two aspects of your life pretty separate? Um, I think I think hobbies are, having hobbies and things that you do outside of work are, are really essential to maintaining kind of like excitement about work. Because I think if I were to have, um, well, for example, in medical school, I uh, the program that I'm in, we're basically in class every day from 8 a.m. to like 5 p.m. I think we get one half day off uh, per per week, um, at least the first semester. And so it was a lot of time spent, you know, thinking about medicine, like grappling with concepts and then a lot of studying to do like at night and on weekends, um, in addition to like doing research and, and stuff. So I think the, the, the hobbies are there really to just sort of um, make sure that, you know, you, you don't make that. It's important to, to be really passionate about your work, but to make your whole life um, absorbed in it, I think uh, you do need these like other things to balance yourself out, right? And like to to give your time, give your brain time to think about uh, to think about other things. And a, a lot of times, like a lot of a lot of great ideas come out of going on walks, um, doing yoga. Like times when I'm, I don't think that my brain is uh, really thinking, but like if I hadn't taken that time to consciously like disconnect from work, then I would might not have had a, a good idea that came out of just like having the downtime of thinking. Great to hear that uh, you can be an MD, PhD at, you know, at the absolute top of your field and, and still have the time to kind of pursue these other interests and, uh, and can also take a lot of, you know, insight and, um, you know, learn a lot along the way from, from kind of pursuing a range of different activities and not being all focused on one thing all the time. It sounds overwhelming though, like how many hours you're in class um, can you speak to how you manage your time and maybe what are the biggest uh, challenges? It just sounds so packed. So thanks for making the time for us as well. No, no problem. Um, I'm actually in grad school now, which is a lot 
lot more flexible in terms of time, which is I'm loving. But um, but yeah, during the med school part, it was a lot of time which you didn't have quite a lot of control over yourself, um, which was uh, hard at first. But I think the things that helped were, um, well, one, my classmates being really incredible people and just like being able to 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 have really strong friendships there and, and learn together as like a, our community, our uh, class classroom was like a community of like 30 people who we basically saw all day, every day. Um, and so I, I met some really good lifelong friends there. Um, and sort of, we worked on like peace sets and projects together outside of class too. And so um, having that like core group of, of really great people to spend that time with was really important to make it enjoyable. Also um, it is important though, if you don't have a lot of, control over um, your time to sort of make good use of the time, time that you do have. So for example, we, we had a whole summer off between uh, first and second year of med school. And I did a lot of kind of exploration in terms of um, looking into to labs uh, to join during my PhD. And so I spent quite a bit of time uh, rotating in labs and during like the school year when there's less time to do research, uh, reaching out to professors who I was interested in their work and setting up uh, times to meet. These are things you can do kind of more um, one-off and don't require like huge amounts of chunks of time. So those were easier to, to schedule during periods of time where I uh, didn't have as much free, free time, longer chunks of free time. Were there any low points where you really just like questioned the amount of, uh, I mean, you, I guess you said you loved school, but that, <laughs> that sounds like a lot for anyone. Yeah, I think definitely. Um, there were, I mean, there are subjects that you're, even if you're passionate about any field, I think there are definitely subfields that you're like less excited about than certain other fields. Like for example, I'm really excited about GI or gastroenterology. And so during that class, like the time went by very quickly, um, was able to, um, was more excited about what I was learning, but then the, some of the classes that I was not quite as interested in, for example, um, neuroanatomy, uh, which is very important. And like neurosurgeons, obviously like they're bread and butter, but like for me, I just, it was, it was very, um, it was like sort of, I sort of saw it as more of a necessary evil to get through. Uh, and basically for that class, uh, we had to learn all of the different structures in the brain, which you wouldn't believe how many structures there are in the brain, uh, and basically be able to, um, remember kind of all of their names, what they do, how they're all connected to each other. Uh, I wasn't as personally like that interested in it, but I did, I mean, you do have to learn it as a medical student. And so I think for that, um, one really good mantra, uh, at least for a lot of medical schools nowadays is that they're going pass fail. And so that means that um, as soon as you reach some sort of threshold of like you've, it's clear that you've, you know, really wrestled with the material and, um, understood kind of the most important parts. It's okay if you don't get everything quite right on like a test. And so that helped to reduce the stress a lot in terms of figuring out um, what subjects were things that I got excited to learn about and kind of gravitate more towards versus other subjects where it was sort of like just pass and then uh, spend your time working on things you're actually more excited about. That's nice. I'm kind of scared for the quality of my medical care um. <laughs> if doing an MD PhD had not been on the table, uh, what would you have done instead? Like, were there other things that you kind of considered and, and, you know, flirted with along the way? 
Yeah, for sure. Um, for a long time, I thought about, you know, just doing research. Um, I uh, am really excited about computer science, its applications to medicine, and you're, you're able to, to do that without, an, without a medical degree. Um, there's so much being done right now. I mean, uh, for in industry um, or in, in academia and the research side, uh, and I think it'll grow a lot in the future. And so um, if I hadn't gone to medical school, I probably uh, would have um, tried to um, either in industry or academia uh, pursued that a bit more. Was there something that pushed the medical school, the practicing part over the edge? It sounds like your EMT experience was impactful, I guess. Um, yeah, what significant events really made you hungry for this? Um, I think for me, it was really both um, working as a peer counselor at the Bridge Peer Counseling Center at Stanford, as well as uh, working as an EMT. Um, coming into Stanford, I um, basically had, had seen the, the bridge at an activities fair. I mean, you're like a freshman, you're trying to figure out uh, what you want to do. And so I went to the activities fair and kind of heard about the bridge's mission and what they um, what they're all about. And so basically, they're this group that uh is both a physical location as well as they have a phone line and you can reach out to them if you're going through anything um, difficult in your life. It could be um, anything from relationship issues to um, like academic issues or even uh, like suicidal ideations. And basically uh, the bridge counselors are um, peer counselors. So they're college students, but they're trained um, and are able to kind of work with uh, you to work through whatever, whatever, whatever it is you're dealing with. And so um, I thought this was a really cool concept. And so I took the like uh, training class for the bridge as a freshman and just sort of found myself really, really liking the, um, the, the work and the, um, like the nature of the work and, and found it really meaningful. And so I ended up joining as a counselor uh, my freshman year and then uh, kind of stayed with them all four years of college. Um, my junior year, I actually even lived at the center. So they have four uh, staff members who physically live on the second floor and uh, take councils from midnight to 9 a.m. And that's how the bridge is a 24-7 service. Um, and so I would say that that year, junior year, uh, being a live-in counselor was like one of the most transformative experiences of my life. Um, just kind of the breadth and depth of like the types of things people de are dealing with and like kind of being uh, being able to help help someone talk through their feelings and, and come up with um, a plan for how they want to to go through um, to tackle what they're whatever it is they're going through. That was very meaningful to me. And I found that I um, a lot of times I would be listening to someone's uh, story and be thinking about them even a few days afterwards and wondering, you know, like, are they OK? Um, or just finding myself really, uh, really touched and moved. And, and it was really like a, felt like a privilege to be able to kind of talk to a stranger through and guide them through a very vulnerable time in their life. Um, and so, so yeah, I think I realized through that year, these like one-on-one -on -one type interactions are, are really powerful and really grounding for me. And uh, we're really solidifying in terms of wanting to um, get the clinical education of going to medical school and um, like learning how to uh, not only the the science behind medicine but also like being able to interact with patients I think makes um, makes it really meaningful. Yeah, that's amazing. 
you went to Stanford and then now you're at Harvard slash MIT. So whether you like it or not, you are an expert at getting prestigious things. <laughs> so I guess what t- tips do you have or like what things can you share about applying to stuff, whether that's to a job or to a, a fancy place? I think a lot of it, honestly, is uh, a bit of luck, but there are definitely things you can um trying to think of like some solid pieces of advice I could give. Um, I think it's important to to try a lot of different things, but I think it's also important to try to generate a bit of like depth in a particular area that's particularly interesting to you. Um, I think for me, that's been uh, science and research um, and uh, like start, like you mentioned in, in high school, I uh, tried to pursue a lot of different um, given the resources in, in my area, like tried to just do all the things that I, I could do. For example, um, participated in a lot of math contests, like um, started our school science Olympiad team um, and had just a lot of fun doing that. Um, and then uh, Tennessee also has this program basically where uh, you can apply to study at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville and take uh, college classes there as a high school student. Um, and so I think they just look at like grades and maybe um, standardized test scores. And so I, I applied to that program and was able to do that my sophomore sophomore year summer, um, which really got me interested in uh, engineering. So I th- I applied to this like the school for science and engineering um, governor school, and that's uh, I think was a big part of kind of um, my experience there and interacting with with peers there who all share similar interests. Um, was a very formative experience. And then sort of coming out of that, I um, realized I I wanted to explore engineering and science a bit more seriously. And so um, that summer I contacted several professors who are at uh, Vanderbilt University, which um, is the university that's closest to where I live. And luckily one uh, research professor there was uh, willing to take on a high school student. And so I was able to uh, work there for two summers. Um, and so uh, I was able to get involved with um, a small project there, which then uh, I entered into science fairs uh, as a high school student and was um, sort of lucky enough to to be selected for uh, the, I think it's now called the Regeneron Science Fair, but at the time was the Intel Science Talent Search. And yeah, that was really a really formative experience, just like, I don't think there were very many students from the middle of the country. There, were, I met a lot of students from the coasts and um, just being able to interact with a lot of people from across the country was uh, really, really cool. Um, I had a similar experience, uh, I think in eighth grade, I um, was able to, uh, I, I did a lot of math contests growing up. And so I thought I was like pretty good at math and um, at least within Tennessee. I was, uh, so I got like third place at the Tennessee State Math Counts competition in eighth grade. And because of that, was able to go to um, the national one in Florida uh, that summer. And that's when I found out that like, I think I placed like 210th out of like uh, 250 or something like very low, like the bottom uh, 15th percentile or whatever. But I think that was, but the the thing that, um, I think that first of all, like really encouraged me to, to, um, to look beyond my high school and look beyond my state and sort of like, uh, like challenge myself to, to, to really try to, 
um, seek out opportunities on more of the national scale. Um, I think I was, uh, that's something that people weren't doing a lot of where I was um, going to school. A lot of, yeah, like in the suburbs of Tennessee, like a lot of people don't go to places like Stanford or Harvard. They, um, they like to kind of stay, a lot of people go to um, universities within the region, um, local region. And so uh, I think going to things like the National Math Counts competition, going to like governor's school, going to things like um, uh, participating in science fairs, that really connected me to uh, a network of like, high, quote unquote, like high achieving students, like outside of um, my immediate area. And I think that was really helpful in terms of um, being able to even think about applying to Stanford or think about um, doing research and, and um, doing these things. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would say like trying to try to explore what you're, what you're interested in, but if you find something that you're really interested in, trying to go as deep as possible uh, with, what, with, with what you have at the time um, is important. And I think coming to college um, was sort of similar. Like I got really interested in computer science. I was sitting in one of these intro computer science classes. And I remember it was like uh, Marty Stepp, who was like a professor there teaching CS106B. And he was like talking about Dijkstra's algorithm, which is basically this algorithm to find the shortest path um, within a graph. And I was sitting there and I was like, this is so cool. Like um, it was one, it was very different from a lot of the pre-med classes that I was in. Uh, computer, science was a, computer science was a lot different from a lot of the pre-med classes I was in. And so I think it sort of was this complementary um, way of thinking and much more like problem solving oriented and uh, just thinking about like algorithms and, and programming I thought was like really, really fun. And so I uh, decided to major in computer science as well as um, biology as an undergraduate and got really involved with uh, research sort of at that intersection. So I interned at um, the NIH at um, summer after my freshman year in the lab of biological modeling there. And then I did most of my research in undergrad with uh, Ami Bhatt, who is a professor um, in the genetics department, medicine and genetics department. Um, and I was actually the first undergrad in her lab and um, sort of really helped to, uh, well, that experience really helped me to like d dive a lot into the into research and, at this intersection. And, and I spent basically three years of undergrad and, and two summers working in the lab. And um, we can get into that too. But basically I think the overall overarching thing is, is uh, it is important to explore, but it's also important to, if you find something you're interested in, like explore it very deeply, because I think um, there you can, you can, and stay with, it's, there is some value in um, staying with certain places long-term because you can uh, learn skills and then get involved with several different projects um, and uh, yeah, be able to have like a, a little, like um, a showcase of like projects that you've worked on or things that you've done when you're applying for, for either med medical school or um, college to, yeah, to, to sort of have these like, it's important to be well-rounded, but it's also important to kind of have uh, interest in deep, deeper interest in certain things. That's really great advice. Uh and I want to kind of go back a little bit. You were talking about going to that national math counts competition and placing a little bit lower than you had had hoped to. 
Um, and then your response to that was to try to seek out more kind of national level competition, which I think is really interesting. And, you know, I think just, you know, obviously seems like a big reason why you're successful is like you have this kind of setback and then go and chase down more challenge and, you know, try and try to kind of approach bigger and, and bigger obstacles. Um, but I'm really curious, was that kind of the first time that you'd faced, um, you know, like a, a kind of failure or like not really meeting your goals um, in, in kind of a big way? Or, or um, had you kind of experienced that before? That was sort of the biggest, I, I would say, like academic failure, like early on in terms of just like realizing that you could be good in your school or your county or, or your state. But I mean, there's always... I guess there are two, two, two things to that is like one, um, it's motivating to realize there's always more things to learn and more like there's always more uh, ways to like strive for excellence or whatever. Um, but the second thing I think is also just like uh, you're never going to be the best at everything, no matter how much you try. Um, and so I think I learned both things that, uh, through that experience. Um, and yeah, I've, I've had I had a lot of setbacks at other in other various pursuits. Like, I, for example, spent a lot of time um, competing in piano competitions growing up. Um, and I loved piano, and I would I think I loved like playing it for myself. But then this like uh, competing in competitions was a little bit more stressful, just because a lot of uh, there were a lot of really talented pianists in the Nashville area, and so uh, I would spend like many, many hours a week practicing and then um, uh, didn't do like as well as I would hope at, at a lot of these piano competitions. And so I think there um, the lesson was like some things you have to do because you uh, you really love them. And so like if you take the competition part out of it, like I loved piano. And so um, there is still intrinsic value in doing in doing in doing piano for that. But like yeah, not everything is about winning everything, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that was, I was, I had to learn to be okay with that. Same with tennis. Like I was very, very mediocre on um, my high school varsity team. It was, I was always playing like uh, the way tennis teams work is like you have a certain number of people who play singles and a certain number of people who play doubles. And you um, like, I would, I would always be playing uh, either low singles or like doubles on the team. Um, and that was fine because I loved it. And like, it was a way to, you know, um, it's okay to recognize when you're not like as good at, at certain things and, and recognize when you would rather pursue uh, certain things more seriously and, and other things are more for your own, you know, you know, your own happiness and enjoyment rather than trying to be the best at it. How did you become such a go-getter or maybe where did you transition from like parentally initiated activities or like scaffolding and encouragement to your own kind of love for piano competitions or math or whatever. And then also follow on is, um, as a woman in STEM, have you faced any obstacles with that or does that not really enter your mind? Yeah. Um, I think I had a sense early on just the fact that my parents are both immigrants, um, growing up, <laughs> growing up in a part of the country where there aren't a lot of diverse immigrants, uh, communities, um, I sort of always sort of felt like I wanted to prove that I belonged some, somewhere or that I had something to contribute. Um, so I think a lot of why I worked really hard in high school, college is sort of trying to just prove not only to others, but just to myself that like I 
you know, like I'm capable and, and I, uh, like I have something to contribute to, to society. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's part of it. And then the other part is just kind of like, um, like really just liking to, to learn and, and to go really deep into, um, into research. Like there've been plenty of times where things we've tried in the, in the lab have failed and you don't really get to see, uh, you don't really get to see those parts. And so the, the hard part is like um, picking yourself up again and going on even in, in the face of failure. Um, like I'll, one of the first projects in the bottom that I was in as an undergrad, uh, basically the whole first year and a half or so, um, we worked on this project to try to predict uh, drug response using the gut microbiome. And um, yeah, basically, basically that we um, that whole project didn't really lead anywhere. Um, and I think a lot of, I, at that at that moment, I was like, oh man, like I spent like uh, over a year like working on this and um, it hasn't like really come to fruition. But then I learned a lot so much through that process that like the next, um, the next project that we tried um, went by much faster and was um, more successful because of kind of the tools that I was able to learn um, on the failed project. And yeah, I guess in terms of being a go-getter, like, um, I don't know if I'm considered like a go-getter compared to a lot of, a lot of peers. Like, um, I do like to try to have a very balanced life. Uh, I do, I do value, like, if I do something, I want to do it uh, excellently um, as much as possible. And if, if it's like something I'm interested in and care about. Um, but yeah, no, I think part of it is just like, uh, growing up in an immigrant family, like my, my parents were basically, they didn't have any resources. My dad literally grew up in um, rural Malaysia. And when he came to the United States, like he, um, he immigrated here and didn't have like any money, any resources. He had to work uh, as a janitor in Lake Tahoe for many summers um, during school in order to pay for his tuition. And likewise, like my mom came here not knowing um, barely any English and like had to completely like restructure her whole her whole life and figure out um, what to make of it with like very little resources. And so I think for me, a big part of why I work so hard is because I realize that I have so many resources at my disposal. Like I've had like a really great education, had um, so much opportunity. And so I, I just don't want it to like, I want to make the most of every opportunity, I guess. What would you say, you know, you've, you've had a lot of experience now of kind of going to school with a lot of people, you know, like you who are really ambitious and you push themselves very hard. Uh, what would you say kind of sets those people apart in addition to just, you know, being hard driving? Like, do you think there are any life experiences or kind of ways at looking at their education and their, their careers that kind of unites, um, you know, different peers that you've had over the course of your education? Um, I think part of it is like, um, like finding joy in the journey because for, I mean, for something like becoming a physician scientist, like it's a very long training path. Like there, um, the journey is very long to get there. It's, and so you have to be a very journey minded person and, and a little bit less of an, um, destination minded person. Um, so I think a lot of my friends and I, we really try to, I mean, we try to do the best we can in, 
you know, science, like uh, learning medicine, but at the same time, like, um, you know, really investing in, in finding community and building friendships and um, like having interests outside of these things, like is important to, to, um, to be able to do, to do well within it. Uh, I think, yeah, a lot of my, a lot of, I do have a lot of friends who are, who are also um, children of, of immigrants or who um, I think were just very determined people and obviously very bright people like growing up. Um, in terms of what sets them apart, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe like it's a bit of, a bit of luck, um, a bit of like, bit of luck, bit of hard work and, and like, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, just sort of like curiosity and, and relentlessness and sort of this mixture of like finding problems that are interesting that you would want to work on for, for ex extended periods of time. And then just really getting kind of really deep into those, into those topics or projects. Yeah, I really like both of those words, curiosity and relentlessness. It, it, it seems kind of hard to, to put your finger exactly on what it is in addition to just like some luck and, and a lot of hard work. Um, but those are great words to hold on to, uh, being curious and being relentless. And I'd love, uh, you know, Andy asked this question earlier. Yeah, I think it's a really important topic. And um, I, one, I have one story for that. Um, uh, so part of, part of like graduate school is trying to pick labs um, and so um, a lab to do your thesis work in. And so I spend a bit of time like meeting with uh, various labs and trying to find a good fit. Um, so there was this one uh, group that I was really interested in working with. And so I ended up, I won't name like uh, where it was, but I ended up visiting the, the lab building, I met with the PI, um, but then had to use the restroom. And so I like was looking around the hall and found the, the restroom and saw that um, the women's the women's restroom on that hall had one stall and then the men's restroom had three stalls. And this was like 20, 2019, like it's not like 1980, like there were women on that hall. And so I, I sort of took that to mean like either um, the women there didn't think it was important to, to have equal numbers of bathroom stalls, um, which, which is fine, but, or they felt like they couldn't really bring that up to somebody in all these years that it's been that way um or you know that just like the building was made with the idea that there would be uh one woman there for every three men there and so that's that's sort of how they built the building um so yeah i was just like really shocked and sort of realized that um that just sort of the way the physical space was built i would not want to spend uh, multiple years working there uh as a student um, so th there, there are these like little, like obvious things. Like I think there's a really good documentary called Picture a Scientist, where they talk about um, women scientists who realized that in terms of like square footage of lab space, women scientists at um, an, an institution, like they found that they were given less lab space, like per square foot than their male colleagues um, and had to like bring that up as like actual evidence that uh, there was you know, some inequities there. Um, yeah, I think just generally women, uh, for various reasons, I think um, uh, it, it's tough in, in certain ways. Um, yeah, women, I think generally tend to, it's, it's a blanket statement, but I think, uh, I think the tendency is like, women are a bit more risk averse in general. And so like they'll tend to apply for things where they feel like they meet 
all the qualifications, whereas um, men feel more comfortable, if still feel comfortable applying to something, even if they only meet like 60, 60% of the qualifications. I think there's been a study like that. But I think that sort of mentality comes to um, comes with it in a lot of different other areas. For example, when applying for you know grants or or um, or fellowships or things like that, um, I think women just uh, generally tend to, if they hear that you know something has a ten percent chance of success, they'll be like, oh, ten percent, that's like really low. But maybe men who hear that think, oh, ten percent, like yeah, that's like non-zero. So we should definitely apply. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to sound, um, these are like general statements and not, uh, hundred percent true, obviously in all cases, but I think this, there's a general tendency to be a bit less confident, um, and a bit more risk averse. And so, um, I'm actually part of, uh, this group, of graduate students um, at Harvard, the Harvard Graduate Women in Science and Engineering. And, and these are sort of things that we talk about quite uh, regularly and, and have tried to think about ways we can try to either, you know, address, um, first of all, by even just naming them, talking about them and, and reaching out to uh, other female, more senior like female scientists and professors and, and hearing their advice for kind of how they approach things. And so some good advice that I've heard um, from Marinka Zitnik, at least uh, at Harvard, is that uh, you know when when you when you start to doubt yourself of like whether you're good enough to be somewhere or um, whether you deserve something, she, uh, she always said that she would look at her 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 like CV and compare it to the CVs of her male colleagues and sort of just sort of see the empirical evidence of like yeah I do deserve this thing and um, even if I don't maybe not 100% feel it, if I at least look at the empirical evidence, like I'm no less qualified than my male colleagues. And so that's sort of how she uh, recommended that we deal with um, imposter syndrome or, you know, feelings of, uh, do I really deserve this if you if you are successful? Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, imp it's important for, for women to, to come together and, and talk about these experiences um, you know, put at least put a name to things uh, as the first step. But I, I think it's 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 also great if if um, our fellow male counterparts can be just generally more aware of things as well and try to make our environments more uh, welcoming and and kind of more equitable everywhere. Certainly, certainly, I yeah, totally agree. Um, and I think you raise a number of really interesting points. Um, especially around kind of more subtle uh, aspects of discrimination that I think a lot of people just overlook, um, you know, the design of buildings, the way that we, um, you know, allocate space, um, the way that we write job descriptions, right. And, and think about qualifications. Um, yeah. A lot of really, really great points. Um, I don't know if you get to spend a lot of time on the Harvard undergrad campus. Um, I, I went there for college and the, the library there, um, Lamont, in the middle of campus, was actually built with the expectation that only men would ever study there. And so there's only one bathroom on every floor. Uh, so they now have switched half of them to be women's bathrooms. But, um, you know, it's kind of this this lasting scar, right? That if you know why that's the case, you can kind of never get it out of your head that this, like, massive building was was built with, you know, a very limited, very, um, you know, discriminatory audience in mind. Um, yeah, so I think it's definitely really important to, to think about um, 
all of those aspects, but especially design. I think that's one that um, that hasn't been talked about as much as it should be. Mm. Do you mind sharing with us, you know, when you interview or like ask a professor to join their lab, like how you actually go about these things and maybe specifically stuff you learned the hard way or like that you wish you were told, do you send thank you notes, these kind of tactical things? Are, are there any specific stuff that you maybe um, get a lot of mileage out of? Yeah, I'm trying to think of some. Um, I think it's really important to find good mentors wherever you are. Um, and the mentors that the good mentors aren't necessarily the ones you'll meet. Like, you know, at first, if you're if you're uh, if you join a lab at first and um, for example, well, um, I guess I guess like first of all, you have to find good mentors who you connect with and who feel like uh, take some interest in you. I think there's um, a difference between actually mentorship and sponsorship, um, and the difference there is you know a mentor is somebody who will give you ten minutes out of their day to talk or you know half an hour an hour to talk about uh, your goals and your life and will try to help you. Um, but maybe don't know as haven't really interacted with you as much over a long period of time um, to really kind of see where you could go. They sort of meet you where you currently are. But I think a sponsor is somebody who um, who has interacted with you, who has maybe worked on projects with you, who has seen kind of your potential and um, can vouch for you know what you haven't done yet, and those are the and and that only comes from you know like working with somebody over long periods of time on on various things where they've seen you fail, and they've seen you like grow. Um, I think those types of relationships of finding uh, sponsors wherever you are is really important because those are people who will write letters of recommendation for you for you know med school grad school, who can really speak to. Um, who you are as a person more uh, at, a, at a deeper level and can really advocate for you for, for as you're saying, like trying to get into um, selective places where they have many applicants for a few number of spots. Um, and yeah, I guess in terms, yeah, little things too. I mean, like sending thank you notes uh, after interviews um, is, 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 I mean, it's not really a tactic. It's sort of just a nice thing to do also, just because like people um, take time to interview you. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah, I guess maybe um, on applications, like one thing, I don't know if uh, it might be helpful is to, to try to frame things as sort of like not only what you did, but also kind of what you learned and what you got out of it beyond um, beyond what you did and sort of like, I'm just thinking about applying to med school slash grad school of just like, I think it's it's easy to try to, to you know, go into the nitty gritty of what exactly you did for this X, what XYZ projects. But um, a lot of these places, they also wanna know how you've grown as a person through, as a scientist, things that you've learned about like, you know, communicating results, um, how to pivot uh, when you reach failure points? Um, what are some things that are very meaningful to you? Like, for example, uh, in my medical school application, I wrote about this journal that I was a part of in undergrad um, called Intersect. Um, it was this under, undergrad run journal. Basically, uh, it's like indexed on Google Scholar and everything, but it's it, uh, 
I basically was um, involved as editor in chief with the journal for two years and um, kind of built up the team and like worked with uh, everyone to like get the increase the publication schedule from yearly to um, quarterly. And um, but yeah, so I, in my statement, I mostly just talked about kind of like things I learned about how, how to manage the team, like how to grow the team um, and sort of how meaningful it was to like watch this body of, of hard work and effort come together into like a publication uh, every quarter. Um, yeah, I think just like trying to bring a bit of humanity and, and feeling into your personal statements. Uh, obviously, this won't apply to like every kind of personal statement uh, for every kind of thing you'll be applying for. But I mean, where you can, I think it's I think uh, um, people reading applications are human. And so if they can connect with maybe they don't know your exact field of science, but they do know what it's like to uh, like fail and then pivot to something else or to like have uh, to go to a conference and feel like that level of like intellectual stimulation and uh, that community of researchers and they they can tap into those feelings. And so I think maybe trying to bring a little bit of that into your applications can try to um, make them more enjoyable to read and more relatable and, and also kind of get a better sense for like uh, how you feel when you're when you're doing these things, because I think they, they look for I mean, um, if you're go if you're signing up for med school or grad school, you know, like people want to know that you you enjoy doing the work. And so, cause you're, you're signing up for a very long training process and a uh, career after that, um, doing this kind of work. And so um, sort of having that come alive in your statements um, and how you talk about your, your involvements with things is, is important for the application process. Yeah. One of my favorite things you've said so far is uh, sponsors versus mentors. That is like the best. I've never thought about this, even though I've seen and heard it in many different ways. Um, and just recently, I was reading Educated by Tara Westover and like a critical point in her academic journey. This is a I don't know if you're familiar with the story. It's like homeschool girl from Idaho grows up like in a cult and never has any like formal schooling until she's 17 and decides to go to college. And then um, at Brigham Young, she had this opportunity to go to Cambridge where there was a like, I don't know, a couple month research gig. And one of the professors that she worked with at Cambridge was like, you are remarkable and I want to help you in your journey and write you. You, you can go anywhere you want for grad school. I will ensure that you get in <laughs> is what he said. And she ended up going uh, to Cambridge and then like later Harvard. Um, and that was uh, like a very clear example of sponsorship. Um, I guess I've had this weird position of asking for recs from mentors who maybe didn't know me as well. And I'm like, please write me a rec. And then I asked, um, someone at some point told me like, ask someone how strongly they feel comfortable recommending you. Um, I guess, do you have any uh, thoughts on how to like suss out if someone is an appropriate sponsor or like, do you address this directly at some point or is it just apparent? Um, how does that work for you? Um, I think at some point it becomes kind of apparent just if you're, if you've been working really closely with someone, um, I can give some examples, maybe like, uh, one of my recommenders was uh, obviously the lab I spent the most time in. Um, she really, the PI Amibot really like, um, invested a lot of, 
uh, of time and and like I invested a lot of time and we we worked on a lot of different projects together. And so, you know, like over that working relationship, um, she got to see a lot of like how I handle failure, how I, um, you know, handle stress, but like, and, and see like little wins and, and losses and, and all these different things. And so I think at some point you build this level of trust with that person. Um, and so it was like, uh, she was very happy obviously to write a letter for, for graduate school. For other letter writers, um, there was one uh, professor who I took took their class as a junior, um, took his class and and really loved it. It was on uh, human physiology, and um, went to several of his office hours uh, just to kind of talk about. Um, he was actually also an MD PhD, um, Peter Cow, uh, at Stanford, and he was actually the he really encouraged me to apply to MD PhD programs. Um, I was actually very intimidated at the time because I didn't have any. Uh, a, publications from undergrad that were um, actually published at the time of applying. And I knew um, a lot of people who apply to MD PhD programs like had uh, like publications like that were actually in uh, journals. Some of ours were submitted or on um, preprint servers, but they weren't actually published. So anyway, I was like, not sure what that would mean. Like, should I take a gap year? Um, but like talking to um, Peter Cowell, like he uh, really encouraged me to um, pursue the MD-PhD path. Um, Ami basically was like, don't worry about the publications. Like as an undergrad, like they, you know, people want to see that you have really, uh, you've, you know, you've tried a lot of different things. Like you've, um, you've put in the dedication, you've put in the time. And honestly, like having projects fail is, is a really great thing for you to experience as an undergrad. And like, cause that's what research is like. Uh, and so she was like, don't worry about the publications. Like, I will write you a very strong um, letter. Um, and yeah, so just like another was a professor who I got really, so I was very involved with the Bridge Peer Counseling Center, um, which I was talking about earlier. Um, and as a live-in, um, whenever the live-ins like had, uh, li live-ins were sort of like the administrative leadership of the bridge, um, but then we also, reported to a faculty advisor um, who kind of helped navigate more of the higher level decision-making uh, happening for the live-ins. Um, and so we, we had like weekly meetings with them and um, well, with him. Um, and so kind of those weekly meetings, like, talk, like uh, working very closely with him through a lot of the bridges, like challenges and ups and downs that year, um, just had like a really good working relationship. And so I think yeah, I think having sponsors, um, ideally, they're people who, you know, you've, you've, you've worked with, but who they've also been able to kind of see you wrestle with hard things, like, um, they've been able to watch you grow and watch you learn skills, maybe um, skills that you weren't as confident in before, and then watch you grow into, uh, into learning them, and can really speak to like more of your potential and because of how, because of, you know, uh, they've been able to observe you for a very long period of time and work with you. How did you actually get to the point where this professor is like seeing your struggles and failures? And I mean, I can imagine, but I'm just curious if you have direct thoughts, like, is it, you know, week three, you're asking more questions and trying to express interest, like, tell me, like, be my mentor, basically, like, how do you signal and kind of deepen a relationship like that and get the return offer and all these things. 
Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, I think part of it was like, as she was also, this is like the first year or two of when she was just starting out her lab uh, at Stanford. And so some of the initial tasks that as an undergrad uh, I was helping out with were honestly in like not very glamorous tasks. Like for example, we um, were studying the microbiome, right? So we, for, we to, to study the microbiome, you need samples. Um, and so one of my uh, first jobs in the lab was to literally take a like a cooler and drag it to um, the uh, bone marrow transplant unit at Stanford Hospital every week um, and collect stool samples from um, patients there uh, and put them in the free uh, put them in the ice chest, bring them back and basically process them and basically squeeze like poop into little tiny tubes, which then go in the freezer. And so we've we actually collected like a thousand poop samples. But like that was that was one of the, my first jobs there. And so I think like um, I came into but like by doing these things that like need to needed to be done, like I was able to help um, other people do. I was able to basically help start build uh, the, the the specimen bank from which research, future research could be done. Um, and through that process, I could, you know, branch off, branch off into starting to actually learn um, other skills that I was more wanting to learn, for example, like how do you take this poop and then extract DNA from it? And so and then how do you take um, the DNA and, and then like, uh, like process the DNA sequences to then map them to uh, reference genomes of bacteria and really get into the analysis. Like these are things that I think once um, once people in the lab and once Ami saw that they like I was I could be trusted with like smaller things they they like over time I was able to ask to you know hey can I um, I really want to learn like how do you you know deduplicate reads and quality control the reads uh, that you get from sequencing like can I can somebody can I learn that from someone and I think because like I had put in the time and like you know really. Um, built up that trust of like, I'm a reliable person who's, um, you know, curious and, and can can do good work. Uh, they were more and more able to, to teach me other skills and to let me get involved with um, other projects. Um, and like, I, for example, wrote uh, some, some just like small grants that you can write as an undergrad to try to get summer funding. So I like, you know, I was like, hey, Ami, I really want to work here during the summer. Um, I found this uh, opportunity that will, you know, uh, if, if we get it, it, it'll just, it'll pay for a lot, like all my housing and stuff. So I um, would work with her on like how to write these grants and then be able to actually do the projects that we wrote the grants about um, was really cool. Um, and I would say like I had met, I found a really great mentor in AMI, but I also found great mentors um, within the lab itself. Like for example, this uh, postdoctoral medical fellow, um, Tessa Anderman, was one of my first uh, mentors that I worked with on our initial project, looking at the difference in drug response. Um, and then I also, um, my first summer there, where I was there, kind of more long term, uh, like there, like morning to night instead of like in and out of classes. Um, I got, uh, uh, I was able to kind of learn a lot of computational skills from one of the grad students, uh, Eli Moss, who was there. And these people sort of serve as served as um, teachers and mentors on more of the like the the science scientific and technical side of things and um, and so over time I think my I went to AMI more for like more higher level kind of uh, 
project directions slash life directions kinds of things. And so it was like this good mix of we would have conversations on like some days about, oh, like our DNA extraction protocol isn't working well, like we're getting low concentrations, like how do we um, how do we fix that? And then some other days I'd be like, ah, Ami, like, I don't know if I want to do an MD PhD. It's like seven to eight to nine years of school. And I don't know if I am ready to commit to that. And then it's sort of just like over time kind of building up uh, this relationship where we could talk about uh, really anything I was like worried about thinking about. And um, yeah, I think it just took a lot of time. Uh, both her kind of being more familiar with me and, and me being more familiar and feeling like I could share more of uh, with her kind of, um, yeah, I think a lot of times with like your boss, you try to, you try to be like super competent to kind of show that you are competent. I, and I think that's obviously super important, but at some, at some level, um, I think the, the feeling of I could um, really come to Ami was when I, uh, would come to her with more just like personal life questions of like, uh, why did, why did you do this in your career? Like, should I, um, should I do, sh should I apply for this fellowship or, or try to apply for this internship or, or whatever? Um, and really letting her kind of into my life as, uh, and make a more, much more personal, like kind of connection that way. That is beautiful. Thank you. Okay. My last question and I'm sorry, I keep asking you like many part questions. Um, <laughs> I saw on your blog that you have, well, one blog post really <laughs> about embracing differentiation. And I'm curious how your thoughts uh, maybe have evolved since then. Or um, I, I just, I like this blog post. It sounds like you already were kind of coming to grips with specializing. Um, and then the follow-up is given that there is only one blog post, do you have any thoughts on your blog, your website, or just identity development in general? Like how do you pull all these threads together and all these different research projects you've worked on, especially, you know, someone early in your career? And how do you tell a story about yourself and to yourself and to the world? Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on those things? Yeah, um, it's been a while since I wrote that. I don't remember everything that I wrote, but I think the general idea was, I wrote it, I think, at a time where, um, you know, you start, uh, it was when I was starting med school and this MD PhD. I mean, I feel like at that at the moment when you start, there's a lot of different doors open to you. Like you can do a lot of different things in terms of um, both on the clinical side, on the research side. Um, it's a t new beginnings are a great time to like sort of take a step back and see if if you want to stay with the field that you've been um, you've have experience in, or if you want to branch out into new areas, it's like a time of new beginnings, you can uh, reinvent, reinvent yourself in, in some to some degree. Um, and so you're sort of like a, a like a hematopoietic stem cell, which is like the cell in your bone marrow that ends up um, creating all the different cells that make up the blood and the immune system. But it's the stem cell, which has like an indeterminate potential. Um, but over time, you do have to make you do have to start making these choices of like, uh, you can't be a stem cell forever. You you know you have to like realize oh maybe I do want to be a lymphocyte or maybe I want to be like a dendritic cell and maybe I need to start like taking the steps to like go down those paths because um, uh, because time does keep going and so uh, and so I think yeah so part of part of me at the time was like wrestling with do I want to stay uh, with you know microbiome work do I want to move more into like 
human uh, research? Do I want to stay? Do I want to do more um, computational work? Do I want to do more wet lab stuff? Um, on that was more on the research side, and then on the clinical side, like what area of medicine do I feel like I would uh, be most interested in? Um, and so I think. Um, I think part of trying to make those kinds of decisions, you have to, there are a lot of voices that, that you can listen to. Um, there are a lot of, you can talk to a lot of people and hear a lot of other people's stories of how they got certain places, certain, certain people's stories and ways of thinking will resonate more with you than others. Um, one, one piece of advice I, I actually got on the interview trail during MD-PhD interviews was, um, Harris Wang at Columbia, he, he told me once, uh, it's, it's it's good it's like it's okay to adopt someone else's passion but it's better to come up with your own passions um and so yeah I, I think just like during this process of differentiation like really kind of tapping into your your own gut feelings about what type of work you like to do what sort of topics like really get you excited to learn about them and grab your attention you know when someone's giving a lecture um, am I excited about this topic or am I kind of like, I probably wouldn't want to work on that. I mean, I think you can slowly try to um, tap into those feelings uh, and be able to make pro a process of elimination that way to sort of narrow down your list of, of, of options. Um, but then at the end with like, if you have a, three or four different um, things that you like equally well, I mean, uh, do a little bit of exploration in each one. Like maybe there are nuances there that you didn't quite realize uh, before exploring them. Um, and then, I mean, if, if you're having really a hard time deciding between two things, they're, um, I mean, they're, do try to explore them fully, but then at some point, like you're, you're probably gonna be fine in either one if it means that you like both of them uh, enough to, to have that struggle. Um, so. So yeah, I think uh, one good piece of advice was uh, from Ed Hundred, who was our, our Dean of Medical Education. Um, he once said like, it's it's actually okay to like mourn those closed doors. Like um, as as you start to make choices and like, I, you know, like I wanna go to, to medical school. And so I don't wanna go to, I don't wanna, you know, go into software engineering or I don't, I, I'm not going to law school. You know, like these are, some doors are easier to close than others. Um, and, but like, as you make more and more decisions that you feel like doors are closing because you're, you're making decisions, like it's okay to sort of take a moment and be like, oh, that would have been a cool, you know, alternate universe where I did that. But, you know, I chose this, this thing that I actually, that I made a decision that I want to do and I'm going to, you know, um, close the door and just keep going and, and not really look back. Cause they're, um, at, at some point, you, you know, you just keep, you just keep, one good framework that I've heard is uh, um, you don't want to, you just have to make the most immediate decision. And you might have some idea in like a, like a distant island for like a general direction for what you would want your career to look like. Um, and at every individual moment, at every individual branch point, you just have to make the immediate decision of like, do I step on this stone or this stone to get to the, to the island? And there are many different routes to like get there. And sometimes like the island might change, but like if you just keep taking these little steps in the general direction of making these little decisions um, that feel right to you, that are exciting to you, um, that you gravitate towards, 
then by the end, like wherever you end up, like it'll be somewhere. You don't have to worry that you uh, don't worry so much and just like have faith that like this process of um, taking the steps and getting somewhere is uh, productive and, and will lead will eventually lead to, to somewhere. And um, that was really helpful just in terms of you don't have to you don't have to feel like every major decision that you're making is going to somehow um, de determine the rest of your life because it definitely doesn't. Um, and, and yeah, I think just, uh, other good pieces of advice is like, definitely be focused on things that you're doing, but also always kind of keep an eye out for, um, other opportunities, things that you wouldn't have expected to come up, um, being flexible with your plans. Like it's good to have some plan, but I don't, I don't really like to plan any more than like a year out. Cause like anything could happen. COVID could happen. Like you don't know what the state of the world will be like, what new technologies will come around, what new like jobs or opportunities might be there that don't exist today, but that you, by doing the things that you like to do and training in, in areas that you find interesting and meaningful, like maybe you're subconsciously preparing yourself for a job that will um, manifest 10, 20 years down the road that you'd be perfect for that. You don't know exactly what that is yet, but like just keep training in um, or just keep exploring and diving deeply into things that you feel are meaningful and that you're excited to, to do. And I think the rest will work itself out. That's what I tell myself. Yeah. I love that advice. And I, I think the visualization of island hopping is really great. How do you kind of, connect that to the advice that, that you talked about way earlier in the show um, of like going really deep. Like when do you know when it's kind of time to take that next step to the next island and kind of go along there versus like really kind of stopping on something and continuing to, to drive further into it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think, um, I think if you realize something's not really working for you, um, then maybe you can kind of pivot to, to maybe you explored this. I guess one good example of this, uh, at least for me, was um, EMTing actually in college. I I really liked learning about like the science and the, the physiology, but the actual like EMTing itself was like very um, high stress for me just because it was uh, basically you're an emergency medical technician, you're on scene, you need to think very quickly, make split decisions like on the spot of uh, how to care for this patient. And I think for me, I, I tend to be someone who likes to think a little bit more slowly through things. And so that um, I really liked, you know, working on working in a team and, and, uh, and, and, but I found the actual like work itself a little bit, like I was a fish out of water, a, a sort of feeling. Um, I grew a lot by just like, keeping at it and trying to improve uh, my skills and stuff. But to some degree, I think I learned through that experience that I would probably prefer more of a um, cognitive or like less less high high intensity to like time-wise like career. So probably wouldn't, you know, I probably wouldn't go into emergency medicine, for example. Um, so, but, so, but it, would, it took like doing that experience for me to realize that about myself. And so, uh, then I sort of, um, you know, similarly with, with research, like I uh, explored 
metagenomics in undergrad and found that I really liked genomics. Like I really liked certain things about it. For example, like uh, the fact that these complex biological phenomena, like you can measure them in um, like sequences, which are very like computable things. And like, um, I really liked being able to use like computer science and, and coding and being able to like send um, jobs to the cluster and, and like uh, analyze these large amounts of sequencing data and, uh, and have them, have them come back to me. I felt like very, it was almost like, um, like Hermione, like being like Hermione Granger, like a sort, sort of a magical feeling, <laughs> like being able to like, all right, so send this job out and it's uh, somewhere on some computer cluster. It's literally like assembling these like millions of, of genomic reads into like a, a long fragment. So there, there were things that I like, as I explored, um, I found the things that I did like about certain areas. Um, and so I realized I wanted to stay within genomics, but maybe not necessarily staying within like microbial genomics. So like um, as a, when I started med school and I was starting to, to look at labs to rotate in, I rotated in a cancer genomics lab. Um, currently I'm working on like single cell genomics. Like these are slightly different uh, areas. So I, I'm trying to sort of explore this like field of genomics, but I did recognize I really liked the fundamental parts about this field. Um, and I recognize like, uh, I did like a lot of fundamental things about science in general, for example, one of my immunology professors, uh, Shiv Palai, um, made this really great point that really stuck, struck with me, was, which is like, in science, there's some degree of directionality to it, where like every new discovery sort of adds to our growing knowledge base to like the direction of like greater knowledge. Yeah, so there, so so like there, there. I think there will be moments if you explore that you will recognize what you learn, what you like about the certain fields, um, and then you can do like maybe sub exploration if there are if you've picked like a, a larger field, like you have to do a, a bit of kind of figuring out where you want to be within that subfield. Definitely. Yeah. That makes perfect sense for sure. Um, and I'm sure it's, yeah, it's, you know, somewhat of a personal journey, definitely figuring out which fields you like enough and where you want to explore and, and invest time. Um, so always something that I'm sure everybody can, can continuously improve on uh, throughout their lives. Maybe do you guys want to wrap up with, um, Three fun questions. Sure. Yeah. These change every episode. Um, so yeah, no, no fun question has been repeated so far. Though I don't know if you were planning to repeat any tonight, David. So my fun twist on the fun questions is James for you to generate them. Oh, for me to generate them. Um, oh, I really like the ones that you had. Well, one that one that I have right off the bat that's not particularly fun, but I do think is really interesting is. Uh, what's the best book you've read in the past three years? Hmm. I really liked um, this book called Tuesdays with Maury. Um, it's about, it, it's sort of about this career driven person who, um, who sort of uh, finds out that his professor from undergrad is, um, uh, is ill and sort of reconnects with his old professor and really learns about um, what it means, like what important things in life are. Um, and I think a lot of the lessons from the book um, are really important, just like to keep in mind always, like re really investing in, in uh, spending time with family and friends, um, you know, really being open and, and vulnerable and being willing to, uh, to connect with people. 
Um, yeah, I think there are a lot of really great messages in, in that book that are, are easy to kind of uh, forget about when um, when you're sort of early on in your career and trying to build, you know, your your professional uh, professional work and stuff. Um, yeah, I'd really recommend. I'll have to go check it out. Um, all right, what is another fun question? Um, if you had to pull an Andy and move to any foreign country, which one would it be? Um, I think probably Australia uh, or New Zealand. I guess they're no close by, but Australia because I think growing up, I, I really liked animals, especially um, platypuses, and they're only found in Australia. They're also, I really like uh, koalas and kangaroos. Um, yeah, so I think just being able to, to see those animals in their natural habitat would be really cool. Um, and then also I'm a really huge fan of Lord of the Rings. So uh, New Zealand was, I think, filmed there, or it was filmed there in New Zealand. So um, yeah, if I were to move anywhere, would be great. Great reasons, all good things, yeah. Um, I was reading today that Australia has a problem because uh, their fruit harvest relies on international travelers. It's like 60% of the labor that picks this fruit is uh, people who just kind of travel to look at like tourists who come there and work part-time picking fruit just so they can like have the experience of traveling around Australia. So uh, really, really hurting without all of these international travelers. Um, but super interesting that they rely so heavily on like tourists. Huh. That's so interesting. Um, all right. And a third fun question. Uh, if you could change any one thing about the medical field, what would you change? Um, I think a big I don't know what the solution would be, but a big um, cause of physician burnout these days is uh, the electronic medical record. Um, there's just a, you spend an inordinate amount of time like doing record keeping, which is you know important, but does drain like a lot of time um, and energy. Uh, and so a lot of times, I also think it takes time away from actually interacting with patients um, and is leading to much less time between patients and doctors. Um, doctors actually getting to, to, you know, talk to a patient, um, uh, do a proper exam and, and um, answer their questions in a comprehensive way just because they feel they're quite rushed in, in terms of seeing a lot of patients every day, documenting each one in the record. Um, and yeah, I think I've just heard that that's very frustrating. Um, I also think it would be helpful to reduce the length of training just because, you know, in other, a lot of other countries, um, medical school is part of undergrad. But I think with having just said that, I do think going through undergrad helps to really um, helps you to explore other fields. And uh, it may, might have taken that time. Like, I, I probably wouldn't have been ready to, like, commit myself to applying to meds, uh, going to medical school as, as a high schooler. So. I, I do think that undergrad uh, exploration is important, but there is a lot of training to medical school, um, medical life. Um, even after medical school, there's like residency, fellowship. It's just a very long training path. And so maybe shortening that uh, would be helpful if there, I mean, I think there are some um, inefficiencies in terms of like ways it could be shortened. So. Uh, in a, in a pipe dream, I guess I'm just saying I wish I wasn't going to be in school for forever, but 
but you know, it is enjoyable. I, I do like I do like learning. So, yeah. You know, it's, you could be, um, you have to have kind of a bigger view of, uh, <laughs> maybe could we, yeah, could we start over with, maybe I'll, can I try this one again? Is it okay if we cut out this part? Um, can I start over is a great thing to say. Yeah, you should actually encourage people more to do that, that like if they want to just kind of take a different tack on, on a question. Um, totally, totally.